Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Today, open source is a vital building block of enterprise software, even if end users and customers are often unaware that it's there. Open source has some real advantages, but some of those advantages, including rapid software development and reusing common components, can also be a security weakness. In fact, some of the most serious security breaches have been distributed through open source code. And the ubiquity of open source means that if code does have a vulnerability or it's manipulated, the consequences are far-reaching. To put this in perspective, one estimate suggests that 96% of open source vulnerabilities occur because developers download the wrong version of code. How then can open source be hardened against attack? And can firms continue to use it safely? Our guest today is Brian Fox, co-founder and CTO at Sonatype. We started by asking him why open source is now such a critical part of enterprise software. I think open source is everywhere at, the, at this point. You can't develop in a modern language like Java or JavaScript or Python or Ruby um, without using key open source components. Um, it, 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 they are so prolific, um, you know, and, and so things like Android, you know, are using a lot of open source car entertainment systems often are driven by Android. So I guess there's a place you might not realize it in, in, in your car, you know, just sitting in devices around your house, it's almost guaranteed that there's open source, uh, inside of those, even though you don't know it. If we think about the enterprise as well, is that a similar picture that it's actually quite ubiquitous now? The average application is is comprised of about ninety percent open source components. It has been for, you know, going on almost two decades at this point. So, um, and and that's just because you know the open source. Um, you know, people tend to think of open source as things like Firefox and Linux and OpenOffice, right? Um, which certainly those are <clears throat> pretty prominent. Um, examples but the the real use of open source comes from the the shared components and that's where i think open source is most ubiquitous because it's these things that businesses don't get you know competitive value on um, innovating in their logging framework or even their network stack or even you know increasingly their ui uh, widgets and controls uh, where they get enterprise value is in assembling those and adding business and domain specific logic on top of them. And so nobody wants to sit down and write a database driver from scratch when there are tons of them uh, that are out there that are, are used by everybody else that have been vetted and proven. And so that's, that's where open source exists. That's why it exists underneath all of these, these systems that you're using, like the ones I referenced before. There's also a lot of reuse of code, though, isn't there? So quite often a system is built on top of components that are acquired or shared or brought in from other sources and then put together to build an enterprise application or a workflow, whatever that is. Again, the vast majority in some cases of that is open source components. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, no, nobody starts from scratch anymore. Uh, you know, when I started my career doing C code, that's, that's what we did. It was very difficult back then to, 
to access open source because the internet wasn't as ubiquitous as it was, you know, um, it, and even then, um, trying to include open source often meant you had to include like literally the source code, you know, copy and paste style into your application. But then you were left trying to figure out how to build and compile somebody else's code, which is, you know, historically a, a challenge. Um, modern build and package managers came along like Maven, one that I was involved in um, now for like 17, 18, 19 years that made it really easy to reuse these binaries, um, as components and assembled your application up. So you didn't have to figure out how to, uh, be an expert in building log for J in order to be able to take advantage of it. And pretty much every package system that's come since Maven, you know, uh, JavaScript with the NPM node package manager and, and PyPI for Python and Ruby gems for Ruby and even NuGet for .NET, all of those kind of followed a similar pattern, which made it really easy for people to, you know, effectively shop for existing components and drop them into their systems. And, and that really, I think, contributed to the explosion of open source usage because it became so much more accessible. Um, and also, you know, easier to upgrade most of the time. Um, because again, you weren't having to go compile somebody else's code. You could just grab the latest version. And that's all been hugely beneficial to the speed of deployment of new applications and the ability to develop digital products. But it does raise some security issues. And you've been researching this now. Sonatype has done a number of research reports on exactly that. This reuse of components and the sharing of components and the idea that people can use libraries and GitHub and other services to build a new application for the enterprise or indeed a consumer facing one, does that have an inherent security risk attached to it? It has a risk in that um, what, what ends up happening with very popular components and frameworks um, is what you know hardware engineers might refer to as a common mode failure, you know, which means uh, uh, all of these systems are using the same component, which means if there's a failure, it's going to take everything out. So you can imagine in a power supply, if all the power supplies in your, your data center had the same part and that same part had a flaw in it, well, your backup, you know, power might go out at the same time as the main one. And, and that common mode failure kind of manifests in these popular components that are are used in nearly every application. So log4j was a perfect example that everybody is familiar with. Um, commons collections, other Apache commons projects, um, you know, even Linux, you know, is in so many different parts of applications that <clears throat> it makes it a sweet target for uh, attackers, right? So if they can figure out how to um, exploit a particular component, um, then they know that, you know, that, that they likely can, can find that in many, many other applications as, as opposed to what they used to have to do, which is sit down and try to figure out how to break each website on its own or each application on its own in a, in a bespoke way. If they can figure out this application is built using struts, then I know 10 different vulnerabilities that might affect it. Right. So I think inherently, <clears throat> That is is a challenge for security, um, just because it, it 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 consolidates the risk. But I wouldn't say that the open source components themselves are necessarily um, less secure than custom code. They just get more attention because when something happens, it does affect many more people. And I would even 
go so far as to say in many applications, many open source projects, the security is um, at least the response to the to the issues is faster than you would find in closed source applications. Uh, you know, in in Log4j, I think is a great example of that. You know, that vulnerability came in, it was initially responsibly disclosed to the team um, over Thanksgiving weekend, but then it was irresponsibly disclosed in um, some, some chat rooms in China over that same weekend. The Log4j team, predominantly based in the US on a holiday weekend, fixed and released that patch within days. Right as soon as it as soon as it was released, and I, I would challenge you to find another commercial organization that would have been able to respond in that time over a holiday weekend like that. Many organizations will ask for ninety days or one hundred and twenty days or what have you, you know, on a on a typical zero day report. So from my perspective, the challenge is often not that open source projects aren't doing a good job at maintaining and fixing these things. The real problem is that uh, organizations that have included these components into their applications often don't track that they've done it. They don't know that they're there and they do a terrible job of upgrading. And, and this is evidenced by some of the stats in the, the report. Um, you know, so we we're sitting here right now, we're, almost two whole years after log4j we're at like what 22 months 25 percent of the versions of log4j that are being downloaded on any given day right now from uh, maven central are of those known vulnerable versions so the team the log4j team fixed it in days and here we are 22 months later a quarter of the consumption of it is still of these known vulnerable versions there's no good answer for that other than organizations don't realize what's inside their, their software. And if I take that to a, a physical goods perspective, I think everybody's familiar with the, the Takata airbags, you know, that we're having some, some issues for, for a number of years that I think it was like five years ago now. Um, can you imagine the outrage if an auto manufacturer was building a 2023 or 2024 model year car right now with those known, defective airbags from five years ago. Like it would be on every headline everywhere. Um, and it would be, it would be absolutely unacceptable. And yet 25% of the time, that's what's happening today with applications that are using log4j. Right. And that's just a, a ridiculous situation. Exactly. And there's another aspect to that, I suppose, which is that because these components are quite common and because they help people by using them, if, a cybercrime group or another actor goes after a particular use of that component, it may affect other people, not their intended target. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. That's that's that common mode failure I was referring to before. And I think it makes applications and organizations much more susceptible to sort of phishing types of attacks, you know, where they're they're basically broadcasting their attack across the internet, trying to find uh, vulnerable applications that they can then subsequently follow up on. You know, the, the infamous um, struts vulnerability that led to Equifax, uh, the data breach, uh, I think is a perfect example of that. Um, you know, months after, after the Equifax uh, issue became publicly known, the Department of Defense announced uh, a timeline of scanning and, and attempted attacks on Department of Defense uh, installations that 
happened on the exact same day as Equifax, right? And so it was a it was a case when you looked at the timeline, it looked like they were literally just blasting this code, crawling the web, trying to find vulnerable applications that probably were recorded because the actual attack didn't happen until days later. So it looks like they were basically indexing soft targets and then coming back later and seeing what they could get out of them, right? Um, and and that's a behavior that I think is somewhat new and, and enabled by this common mode failure of very popular components. Yeah, so some of it is optimistic. Uh, coming back to the report, though, coming back to your research, it's the ninth annual uh, State of Security Software Supply Chain uh, report. So you've been monitoring this for a good number of years and built up a lot of data around the problems. And as we've already alluded to, some of these problems are certainly not new. But you're seeing a sharp increase in the number of software supply chain attacks. And the statistic is that there's been twice as many software supply chain attacks in 2023. 2023 isn't quite over yet than in 2019 to 2022 altogether. So that is a huge increase in the number of attacks. I know attribution is always difficult in this industry, but what do you think lies behind it? Yeah, it's it's a it's a good question. So what that stat is specifically talking about are intentional supply chain attacks. So things that manifest like uh, bad actors creating intentionally malicious components and putting them into the repositories and tricking people into downloading them, right? And so up until this point, everything that I've referenced, Log4j, Commons Collection, Struts, those were somewhat old school vulnerabilities. Those were bugs that existed in, in popular code. You know, Even in the Log4j scenario, it was a case of two features that when put together enabled the vulnerability. It, it, it's hard to even call some of these classic software box, right? Um, it, it was more of an integration combination, you know, like ammonia and bleach are safe when used independently, but you put them together and you have poisonous gas. Um, hard to say that bleach has a bug because of that. And that that's the situation in many of these vulnerabilities. So classic vulnerabilities are bugs that can lead to security implications. What, what we started to see in 2017 was... Um, intentional attacks on open source developers, you know, so um, stealing of credentials um, um, for, for open source publishers specifically. And then we started to see um, initially, you know, a, account takeovers of, of open source publishers, you know, where components were inserted into their release chain um, that came from somebody else that maybe had stolen credentials or, or in some cases, social engineered their way to, to be trusted. Um, and, and then increasingly we've seen additional types of attacks where, where they're using, um, you know, the lack of namespace validation within repositories like NPM, Python, Ruby to create components that have similar names to popular components. And then developers make a mistake they grab the wrong one. Oftentimes these components are um, you know trying to exfiltrate data? They're dropping back doors. They're they're focused on attacking the developers and the development infrastructure. Um, but this is a whole new class of problem. It is, I, I, I try to draw the distinction between latent vulnerabilities that may or may not be exploitable in your particular application, and these intentionally malicious things who are literally attacks that are being delivered directly to your developer systems. It's a, it's a very different dynamic. 
And we started seeing that in 2017, I was on the conference circuit. And for a long time, you know, I was walking people through individual attacks and there was new ones every week. So every time I gave the talk, I was able to add, you know, a new element to the story, but that was quaint (laughs) compared to now when, when, you know, there were one or two a month or a week. Now we're talking, there were, uh, you know, uh, there's 245,000, half of those came last year. And last year's report, we had found that over the previous three years, on average, it had grown 742% each year for each of those three years. So it's still shocking that even here we are now the fourth year, you know, uh, fifth year after that, and it doubled yet again. And so what we're seeing, I think, are the attackers have figured out that this is a force multiplier. It's a great way for them to get these components out there. And because as an industry, our defenses against it are so terrible, I think they're just mopping up, which is what's breeding more and more of them. You know, people ask me this question, are these things effective? And and I, I, I hold up the fact that the number doubled yet again as evidence that it is in fact effective, because if it wasn't, they'd be doing something different. We'll come back to how you deal with those two different lines of attack or two different lines of vulnerability in a moment. But I just want to run over a couple of headline statistics in the reports. I think it's worth sharing. One that stands out is that almost all these vulnerabilities are actually avoidable. And a lot of them, perhaps the vast majority of them, are actually to do with organizations and developers using older versions of code that has subsequently been addressed, as you already mentioned with Log4j. Why do you think that's a problem? Right. So the the statistic, unfortunately, this year is exactly the same as it was last year. When something is being consumed from a repository that is known to be vulnerable already at the time it's being downloaded, 96% of the time, it was already fixed by the project. Right. So in the wake of Log4j, there was a lot of calls from industry and regulators talking about we need to do a better job of funding open source and all these things. And while they may be true, that at best solves 4% of the problem. <laughs> you know, 96% of the problem is literally these organizations keep pulling these already known vulnerables, vulnerable components from the repositories. And so why is that happening? It's because uh, historically, I think organizations haven't really um, put their arms around how modern software is developed, you know, and, and we started solving this problem close to 15 years ago now. And in the early days, we would talk to leaders at organizations who ought to care, and they would say, we're not using open source. Um, and we'd look at our repository. We run the Maven central repository where all of the world's open source Java is sourced from. So we could, we have incredible visibility and we could see some of these organizations were downloading more components from us than anybody else in the world. And their leaders would say, we're not using open source because in their mind, open source meant Linux, Firefox, and open office. And so the, the, the reason why in many organizations, open source was initially, you know, used so much was because developers could go get it. They didn't have to go through a large procurement process to buy a component, to justify the business expense and go through all the contract hassles, right? They need a thing. um, They need it now because they have deadlines. The side effect of that is organizations historically did not maintain a list of these things, right? Um, And so, and it, it gets compounded a little bit because 
open source components and frameworks like every other application also depend upon open source components. And so you pull in one framework, it might drag a hundred components behind it that are also open source. Or in the case of NPM where the components are much smaller, it can be a one to 1000 uh, explosion in what we call the transitive dependencies. So my direct dependency, you know, then transitively depends upon a bunch of other things and it makes it difficult. You can't track those things manually. And so, you know, nowhere in a contract office uh, was there a contract sitting around that said, yeah, we have log4j and this is a company responsible for it and, and uh, we update it regularly, right? And so it flies under the radar. So the fact that it was easy for developers to get access to was a benefit, but because organizations didn't adjust their processes to understand what was in there, it leads to this blind spot. Um, and so that's why I believe, you know, 96% of these downloads are still happening when there is a better version available. It's not that they're making an intentional choice. It's an unintentional choice through lack of visibility. That's where things like software bill of materials start to come into play. You know, S bombs by themselves won't solve this problem. But if you don't have any visibility, if you don't have the ability to generate a bill of materials for your organization, then how do you even know if you're affected by the next vulnerability that comes out tomorrow? The answer is you don't, right? And so I think those, those are the reasons why this continues to happen. And more active maintenance of the code base and of projects is absolutely critical. And that's, again, only being done by a minority of organizations, according to your research. So how do we get beyond that? And I think, again, if we just go back to where we were there's a split, isn't there? There's how do you deal with the issue of vulnerabilities coming into the system, the transitive vulnerabilities, the lack of updates, or perhaps the incorrect versions being loaded, and that unintentional vulnerability or unintentional weakness being created in the code base. And at the other end of the spectrum, there's the need to defend against those targeted attacks that are specifically going after your business, they're not simply going after every piece of software using a particular bit of open source code because they found a bug. They're specifically targeting your organization because there's data they want to exfiltrate, there's ransomware they want to deploy, or another another target for them, another objective for the bad actors. Would you split those two parts of defense into separate tasks? I think I would. The, the traditional, they're trying to break your system you know, there's lots of defenses for that, right? That's where, uh, you know, uh, network monitoring and, and behavioral monitoring of what's going on in systems and production and, and traditional, you know, the OWASP top 10 was largely focused on those, you know, best, best practices, things like, you know, uh, making sure, you know, SQL injection attacks are prevented, you know, these types of things, because when an attacker is basically faced with an unknown system, their toolkit consists of different types of attacks that you can expect flaws that are common in, in software in general, but specifically custom code. That is one uh, type of attack that looks one way. This other thing, this common mode failure that we're talking about, largely can be solved by understanding what is actually in your software and then monitoring for those things when, when they need to be upgraded. I mean, commercial endpoint systems pretty commonly will, you know, remind employees that, Hey, you need to update office or you need to update zoom or, you know, most of these things are self updating these days for precisely the same reasons. You need to have systems in place that understand and inventory the dependencies inside your applications and then be proactive about, uh, about staying up to date on those. Um, you know, and, and 
people say it's hard. It's not necessarily easy, but it's really not hard. Tools have existed for more than a decade now to help solve this problem. You know, we were one of the first to do it because we saw this problem. We saw looking at the statistics in Maven Central way back when that in some cases, the most popular version of a component was the one with a level 10 security vulnerability that had been known for two years, right? So we understood right away that it wasn't that it wasn't fixed. It was that people weren't upgrading. Um, and you start pulling that thread and you understand all of the things that we've been talking about here. So yeah, you definitely need to break those problems into two. And I, it, it's actually three problems because the intentionally malicious components that we were talking about requires yet again, a different approach, right? So if you take, if you take uh, the traditional, you know, dev ops, dev sec ops concepts, you know, we, we often refer to Edwards Deming who helped uh, the, the Japanese auto industry rebuild after the war and led to some, you know, massive efficiency gains and quality gains in companies like Toyota. And so there are certain things that you need to do. You know, they, he talks about understanding the parts and tracking them all the way down and not letting, uh, you know, not ignoring problems to be fixed later. You know, the classic, you can't inspect quality into a system. Those are designed at creating better cars more efficiently. And when you apply that to software, the same is true. So having bill of materials, like we were just talking about is literally the same thing, but building better cars with more efficient parts and knowing what's in them inherently by itself does not stop somebody who is intent on blowing up the factory and these malicious components. That's what's basically happening here. And so in, in many instances, the fake components, they don't even contain the actual code for uh, the component they pretend to be. And so what that means is when the developer accidentally adds it to their build script and it downloads it and it tries to compile, their build is going to fail because it's missing the stuff it actually needs. Um, and so the, the developers, because not enough of them are aware that that is a vector for uh, these attacks, will often you know say, whoops, I grabbed the wrong one. Let me get the right one. And then they check that code in and it's when it becomes visible to the centralized systems, your CI, CD system, the malicious co component is not there anymore because it's not intended to get into your application and be distributed downstream. It's intended to do a smash and grab on the developer machine. And so because, because it basically blows up fairly spectacularly right away, and because people don't recognize that that might be an indicator that they just got hacked, it means it flies under the radar. So if you've designed systems to build bill of materials and monitor them and do all the other quality things before you put software in production, you're still not going to catch most of these malicious components. You need to be able to intercept what's going on between um, the developer machine and these public repositories and know in real time which ones are malicious and which ones not. It looks very much like what firewalls have to do at the packet level. Um, and so there's really those three different types of problems. And it's this third one that I find most organizations have no awareness that it's even something they need to be thinking about. They don't even know that this problem exists. So as an industry or a community, does the open source movement need to do more to publicize actually some of these issues that there are vulnerabilities? There's vulnerabilities in all the code, as we said, there's vulnerabilities in proprietary code. 
uh, but actually get CIOs and CISOs and others more attuned to the fact that there is a, a way of working they need to adopt and their developers need to adopt to ensure that they are building in a secure way and also able to keep it secure during the life cycle of that application. I have seen over the last couple of years, you know, the, the SBOM uh, movement, certainly in, in the US. You know, at first I kind of was like, I don't get it. S bombs are a means to an end. Like we, we for our customers solved that problem, you know, many years before. Um, but the the end we were after was to help them manage and respond to um, the the vulnerabilities in their components, um, and, and not so much to just produce the piece of paper. You know, so at its bare, you know, minimum, a, a software bill of materials is just a list of the components inside it. Imagine if the government required auto manufacturers only to list all the parts in the cars they make and put it in a glove box when they sell it. And they'd had no requirements to actually monitor that and do subsequent recalls, right? The end result of that would be pretty terrible, I think. And it, it basically puts the onus on each consumer to constantly check this list, right? That's kind of insane. At its bare minimum, SBOMS is kind of doing that. But what I've seen is that the conversation around uh, the software bill of materials has caused more people to be really aware of these challenges and at least recognize the first part of the problem, which is if you don't know what's inside your software, you have no chance of being able to respond. Um, certainly to these intentionally malicious things, but also, you know, to log4j, you know, we had organizations who updated their applications and patched log4j across thousands of applications in four days. Um, and then we've talked to other organizations who spent six months just trying to understand where they needed to do an upgrade, right? So having the bill of materials through systems allows you to basically skip the triage phase and directly move to solving it. It's kind of ironic because, you know, we as consumers all expect this of our food supply, of our manufacturers. You know, we would not accept a new manufacturer coming on the scenes who literally had no idea where the parts inside their their car came from. You know, I don't know. Um, the guy on the, the the assembly line chose which uh, vendor he was going to put, you know, the, the brakes from. <laughs> you know, that, that would not go very far in the physical world, but yet that's basically how software is built in, in a lot of organizations today. Brian Fox at Sonatype, setting out what CIOs and CISOs need to do to secure open source across their technology estate. Listeners can also download the full report at sonatype.com forward slash SSCR. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. In our next programme, we'll look again at the EU's Cyber Resilience Act and why a growing number of cybersecurity experts worry that some of its provisions might even do more harm than good. You can listen to that from Thursday the 16th of November. Until then, do catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, or subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.